0: If Japan needs one thing, that thing is confidence, the ability to turn our faces to the sun like the sunflower when it blooms in the height of summer. Abe Shinzo, the iconoclast, is the title of Tobias Harris's new book, a political biography of the most important Japanese prime minister of the past few decades. Tobias is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, a left-leaning DC think tank. He also got his start as an independent blogger and confused grad student, which of course touches a very soft spot in my heart. We'll also at the end of the show get a little bit into contemporary Japan-China relations. So before we jump into our friend Abe, can we talk a little bit about the early 2010s Asian English language politics blogging ecosystem? What similarities and differences are are there from the sort of proliferation of sub stacks and whatnot that we see today i'm profoundly nostalgic
1: for it i started observing japan my blog in 2006 when i went to japan to work for a japanese legislator and originally i had not even intended really to write for an audience i just thought i was going to be in japan i needed to just continue to write because what i've learned is that writing is very much a muscle you know if, if you don't practice if you don't keep it up it becomes very easy to lose your edge So I thought I was just going to keep writing. I was seeing things, you know, sort of a diary. I was reading a lot and so writing about the things I was reading. And over time, I just discovered other blogs that were writing about Japanese politics and and Asia geopolitics. So, of course, at that point, you you linked other people. They find you. Suddenly, I started watching my traffic numbers grow and realized I actually had to watch those traffic numbers. And I was just on Blogspot. This was like low tech. There was really no way of monetizing it other than Google Ads at that point, but that was negligible. Let's not kid ourselves, that's not monetizing it. And, you know, so started getting a bigger audience and then started actually getting invited to write op-eds, got invited onto TV, you know, as like a 25-year-old blogger, which which was <laughs> always funny. But there were definitely fewer avenues for getting any kind of living out of it. No Patreon, no, you know, none of that existed.
0: Yeah, and I think this sort of like lesson for the youth is if you write it, they will come eventually. And the writing is not an end in itself, but it's a part of the learning process. And if you have some discipline and, and commit yourself to saying, "Okay, I'm going to write like a column once a week or something," you'll end up reading more and ingesting more than you would otherwise. And it sort of serves as a very virtuous cycle because the more you write, the more you learn, and the more you learn, the more interesting things you can write. So even if you were writing to a Substack which has you know your parents and your ex boyfriend or girlfriend on the distribution list, the the, the point is not the sort of near term rewards of how many clicks X thing gets. It's the development that you are doing to just learn about whatever topic it is, which you're passionate about. Yeah.
1: And you figure out what you think about things by writing until you actually write it down. You have this mess of thoughts in your head. And once you force yourself to actually sit down and commit to it in writing, it really helps you organize something coherent. And then you do that enough and it just becomes automatic. You just know. When you're reading, you, you, you read and you're thinking down your thoughts and then you just put them down and you force yourself to structure that argument and, and to really put it together. And it's nice to get paid for your writing. It's nice to get to a point in your career where you can expect to get paid for your writing. But fortunately, there are tools now where there's nothing stopping you from just from honing your, your craft, finding your voice as a writer and as an analyst and just doing it. And the best way to do it is to do it. There's not really any obstacle. That
0: would be my advice. So, you know, it's one thing to write 500-page hot takes on Japanese newspaper articles. It's another to put a whole book out, which you did, Tobias, about the political arc of Abe Shinzo. So let's start at the beginning. He has a really interesting personal backstory. The influence of his grandfather was something which I didn't know about that I thought was a really interesting wrinkle in, in creating his worldview. Why don't you talk a little bit about the, the world in which Abe grew up in? Sure.
1: It it was definitely one of the things that drew me to him as a subject. Again, going back to my earliest days as a blogger, because I started my blog right after he became prime minister for the first time. And there's just so much richness to him as a political figure that he's a third generation politician, the grandson of really one of the most important political figures of post-war or actually starting during the pre-war period and and through the post-war Kishi Nobusuke, I mean, this giant figure, one of the founders of the LDP, a wartime cabinet minister, I mean, just a really major, important figure. And Abe, young, obviously, when his grandfather was prime minister, but very much grew up wanting to understand his grandfather, wanting to emulate his grandfather in many ways. And so as a starting place for thinking about him, I mean, it was certainly just an absolutely fascinating story of how this arch-conservative Kishi, how his ideas and influence have now extended well into the 21st century. That really is part of the Abe story. The more I, I Dug into Abe though, what I, what I also found interesting. So his father Shintaro, was you know a major LDP politician in his own right, and what I thought was interesting was that as much as Abe admired his grandfather, was drawn to his grandfather, wanted to emulate his grandfather, there was also a certain tension with his father. And part of that was just his father was a rising politician when Abe was young, I think was not the most present parent. You know, so naturally, I think there's you know, just some, some personal drama related to that. There was, There's was this moment where Abe became his father's secretary when he became foreign minister in the 80s. And there was this moment about whether Abe was going to accept his father's request that he, he work for him. And then he all of a sudden, after really not having had no opportunities to be close, all of a sudden they're working together all the time. And I think you know, there, there was some tension around that. So as much as we talk about Abe's relationship with his grandfather shaping his politics, there's also... I, I think an element of rejecting his father's politics. You know, his father came to this generation of LDP politicians where
0: they weren't particularly ideological. It was very much about the LDP maintaining power. Or, Tobias, can you do like that one minute intro? What is the LDP? Yeah.
1: So the Liberal Democratic Party, which formed in 1955, has been the dominant party of post war Japanese politics, governing for all but roughly four years since 1955. It is a conservative party, but at different points in time, that's meant different things. It's fairly broad tent for example during the cold war the party was really divided between people who wanted japan to be lightly armed closely allied to the united states they didn't want it to be a great power again in the way that it had been before the war then you had people like abe's grandfather who thought the ldp should be a proponent for a much more strident conservative nationalism uh remilitarized allied to the u.s anti-communist but not subordinate to the u.s And so that was a main dividing line within the LDP during the Cold War. And I think Abe looked at people like his father, who came of age as the LDP was dominant during the Cold War and had come to accept this idea of a lightly armed Japan and and really wasn't pushing very hard for that to change. I I think Abe looked at his father's generation and did not like the compromises they made, thought that they too easily accepted
0: this consensus that left Japan as a subordinate partner to the United States. You know, it's it's interesting sort of because I've now had like 15 years of reading political biographies. And I remember back in high school, I was like, really focused on what these guys were like in high school and then in college i was focused on what they were like in college and now i'm like focused on what they were like in their first few jobs you know it was notable that he had a really formative moment in the 1964 japan olympics where he saw like a shining optimistic forward-looking japan excited about the future and and saw that in his grandfather's mindset of like japan being a sort of great power striding along the world and optimistic about its future which you know there are a lot of dark parts of the 1930s 30s Japan obviously but you know that flowery vision he had a line back when he was prime minister, where he said, if Japan needs one thing, that thing is confidence. The ability to turn our faces to the sun, like the sunflower when it blooms in the height of summer. Which I think, as you were saying, Tobias, is very kind of discordant from the much more low-key vibe, which a lot of Japanese politicians were riding on for most of the 20th century. He also had a little uh, dalliance with America. He was not on the Corsus Onorum of going to Tokyo University and majoring in law and kind of playing that game because he wasn't a great student and and then he showed us up in the U.S. but like I guess missed Japanese food and like English wasn't so great and came back relatively quickly after hanging out in California for a little while. So then he kind of gets his big break straight through patronage and then bursts onto the national uh, scene as a politician, really starting to make hay of, of nationalist causes, in particular, the DPRK's abduction of Japanese people like straight off beaches, which I just cannot believe was a thing which actually happened. Tobias, let's give a little background about that, what was happening there, and how was this issue in particular critical to Abe's rise?
1: Sure. So Abe, so he enters politics in 1993. His father had died in 1991. He inherits his father's seat. He inherits many of his father's allies in the LDP. His father had been very close to becoming prime minister himself and then died young. One one writer has described him as the LDP's unlucky prince. Abe's father was supposed to be prime minister. He fell short. And so Abe inherits These expectations, his father's reputation, his father's clout, his father's friends and patrons. He enters politics in 1993 with all those expectations. He also enters politics at a moment where all the sort of certainties of Cold War era Japanese politics ended. So the Cold War ends. You have trade friction with the United States, the economic bubble bursts. And so this idea of Japan as number one or soon to be number one, Japan as this great economic model is shattered almost instantly the ldp loses power actually when abe enters politics the ldp loses power for the first time in 1993 to this unruly coalition so everything for the moment had changed and so he actually enters politics with the ldp in opposition and all of a sudden you have these new opportunities to question the way things had been for decades leading up to 1993. There's just more space for debating. And I think what Abe sees is a country whose confidence is shattered by the bursting of the bubble. They see just uncertainty about Japan's place in the world. They see the region changing. It's a little early and people aren't really that... Concerned about China as a threat, but you hear some voices looking ahead and and seeing what China might become and thinking about some of the dangers. And I think after the 1996 Taiwan Straits crisis, I think you heard more of that. Of course, you have a crisis with North Korea right around the same time. And so there's all of a sudden there's the region is changing around Japan. And I think you have a politician like Abe and, and a number of younger LDP politicians like him who looked at all of this and who said, it's time for Japan to change. It is time for Japan to rediscover its national strength. We don't have to be bound by the constraints on our military power that we were bound by before. We don't have to be bound by this constitution from from the occupation period. We can be a great power again. And so, of course, Abe looks to his grandfather and looks to his grandfather's generation and downplays some of the horrors that that generation perpetrated in Asia and said, actually, no, we should be confident again. We shouldn't be embarrassed about our past. We should be a great power again and we shouldn't be apologizing for our history anymore either and so of course you know you had a number of culture war fights during the 90s you had the the 40th anniversary of the end of the war and an apology by a socialist prime minister in Japan at that point for Japan's conduct during the war. And so that became something they were pushing back against. that the part of making Japan a confident great power meant that it shouldn't be embarrassed about its past anymore. It shouldn't have to apologize. And so all of these issues were things that Abe and this young cohort of conservatives in the LDP were fighting about and were pushing for. The abductee issue was really the perfect issue for them to make this case. And so what had happened was, so during the 70s and 80s, North Korea had abducted Japanese citizens from beaches and from streets of Japanese cities or for overseas in Europe, whether they ended up using them as language instructors or for various reasons. It was just a crazy thing. But it was also like almost treated as this wild conspiracy that no one talked about it. The mainstream press didn't cover it. Even mainstream LDP politicians didn't want to talk about it.
0: Was this because people didn't think it was real? Or because it was sort of politically inconvenient at the time. You also have an anecdote of some some Japanese senior politician taking money from the North Koreans in the early 90s. Like, what was going on there?
1: Well, I, I mean, that was the belief that you, know, you had all sorts of kind of transactional foreign policy going on. And... The, sort of long-standing debates about whether to normalize relations with North Korea and what the price would be and were there ways that Japan could profit from that. You also had a more powerful socialist party at that point that also was interested in not being too hard on North Korea. But even within the LDP, you had politicians who saw it more about what money was there to be gained from it than justice or national strength. And, you know, yes, there were rumors But there was a lot of pressure not to give those rumors any credence and to keep those rumors from becoming a political issue through the end of the Cold War. And there really was not any space for that to be taken seriously until the late 90s when there was more evidence, more signs that this was something legitimate. And so for people like Abe and his sort of, what I call in the book, the, the new conservatives around him, they saw this as this is exactly what was wrong with post-war Japan. Here is a, a foreign country is taking Japanese children from from their families, taking them away and the Japanese state does nothing and instead the bureaucrats and the politicians, all they want to do is talk about what can we give North Korea? How do we, you know, bribe them, you know, to be nice to us and, and bending over backwards to make North Korea happy. It was the perfect demonstration of all the things they were were saying that we're wrong with the post-war Japanese state and why things had to change. And then, of course, as more evidence came out, their, their argument got a lot of hearing because it seemed that the evidence was irrefutable that actually that this had happened. And then finally, in 2002, and I don't want to jump ahead too far, the North Koreans admitted and it really helped cement Abe as a national
0: figure that actually, oh, these people were right. Everything they were saying, maybe we need to hear them out. Sure. So... Let's let's bring us up to the first prime ministership. How did this happen and how did it go so horribly wrong in his first turn in a leadership role?
1: So, Abe was brought into government for the first time in 2000 as a Deputy Chief Cabinet Secretary. So, not a full cabinet, member of the cabinet, not a policymaker or decision maker, more of an executor of policy. But it is his first position of responsibility. He's still a relatively junior politician at that point. But it did mean that he was part of the discussions around normalization with North Korea in 2002. It allowed him to make the case for a hard line on the abductees when to, directly to Prime Minister Koizumi, who was interested, talked with North Korea about normalization. And there's this episode of Abe and Pyongyang. Koizumi goes there in October 2002. And, you know, the North Koreans admit to the abductions. But Abe had stood up and said, you have to make sure that they fess up and they apologize and and as a result of this, Abe becomes a major national figure, vindicated for his work on this issue. And as a result, Koizumi, when he is trying to decide who should lead his party and had these top positions in subsequent years heading into elections, he views Abe as someone who can be useful for him. He's got a national reputation. Maybe he will help the LDP win an election. And so he makes Abe the LDP secretary general, which is the number two in the party. He's the party's face heading into an election campaign. And so Koizumi sort of pulls him along. Gives him more and more responsibility, and then by the time Koizumi is leaving office in 2006, his term is coming to an end. Abe becomes almost inevitable as the successor. He's this popular figure; he will be able to carry on Koizumi's work. Koizumi had had this kind of rock star quality. He had won an enormous victory in 2005, and the consensus was: we'll get a change to a new generation of leaders. Abe, at this point was 52. He would the, make him the youngest post-war prime minister, the first prime minister born after the war. And so there was this great consensus that you had to have this generational change and Abe was the guy to do it. But I think as Abe admitted after the fact that he wasn't really ready for it. He, he allowed himself to get swept up in the enthusiasm. He wasn't able to say, oh, hold on, I, I haven't had a, a ministerial position. I haven't really had that kind of de- decision making responsibility. Maybe I'm not quite ready for this. Maybe someone else should have the job and I can be next in line after that. Once I've had a little more seasoning, an opportunity to develop my policy expertise on issues other than foreign and defense affairs. He was very much a foreign and defense policy specialist. But in 2006, the public most of all was really interested in economic issues, growing inequality. He admitted at the time that he didn't have that kind of expertise. And so he, he just was not ready for the job yet. And it really showed once he took over. He was also surrounded by a number of other younger, inexperienced people who didn't quite know what they were supposed to be doing, that they were supposed to be helping the prime minister.
0: Is this like a first year or two of Clinton presidency, like bringing all the boys from Arkansas? Type deal? Like, who were these bumbling, corrupt idiots that Abe had around him in this first round? So,
1: there were two kind of separate problems. One was that the prime minister's office, over the last several decades, has more power to staff his office with his own people. And the people he picked were sort of his fellow ideologues. They were younger, they were ambitious for themselves. And I I think they weren't really putting Abe's interests first. And so they spent a lot of time fighting amongst themselves. They weren't really ever able to get on the same page. The messaging was poor. It was just kind of a fiasco. No one was really prepared to work for Abe and to protect Abe. A separate problem was that I think because Abe was relatively junior, he didn't have as much control over his cabinet appointments as he might have wanted. And so he ended up, I think, getting saddled with just these, you know, kind of older politicians who had done their time and, and deserved cabinet posts. They were gaff machines. They had corruption scandals. And I think Abe also was so afraid of giving an inch to the opposition and giving ground to the media so that when there were gaffes, when there were scandals, Abe dug in his heels and defended them at all costs and Ultimately, and I think he admitted that one of the lessons he learned when he came back into office in 2012 was that sometimes you just have to be willing to sacrifice someone in the interest of the government. And so one of the things he did when he came back was that if a cabinet minister got into trouble, cut them
0: loose. So there, it's going poorly. He has a health crisis. Steps down in 2007. And then we have these sort of years in the, in the wilderness. This, you know, kid with a very privileged upbringing who everything has broken the right way for him and was a really young prime minister. All of a sudden has to kind of like figure out his life. A few interesting dynamics from that time. Uh, you said that his wife wanted to start an izakaya. I'm curious, like, did that happen? Have you been? Is it good? Oh, yeah, I should say Abe grew you
1: know, born and raised in Tokyo. His family is from Yamaguchi Prefecture, which is at the very western tip of Honshu, the largest of the main islands. And so she started this Izakaya and specializes in food from Yamaguchi. So when I was researching the book, I stopped in. She wasn't there, but it stayed open after he returned to the premiership. The food was good. Good drinks. There was some calligraphy by Ave. I took a picture of it, just a, a drawing and some calligraphy that he had done on the walls. But if you didn't know,
0: you, know, you just popped in. It's not like it would have been obvious that, oh, this was a personal project. So anyways, point being, his family, his wife is just done with this whole political adventure, which almost cost him his life. At the same time, he's kind of figuring out what his role is. And, you know, he is relatively young, but also had an incredibly embarrassing fall from grace And there was a a bit of a Koizumi era, but it seemed like the trend of short, ineffectual prime ministers was something that was going to continue for the time being. So, one of the things which you argue was seminal was his view on monetary policy. And on the one hand, you know, you said that like he didn't really know a lot about economics, but there's this great. Keynes quote, which I think applies pretty directly here. Keynes said that the ideas of economists and political philosophers, both when they are right and when they are wrong, are more powerful than is commonly understood. Indeed, the world is ruled by little else. Practical men who believe themselves to be quite exempt from any intellectual influences are usually the slaves of some defunct economist. In this case, I guess it's Paul Krugman, who you know is kind of like the ghost of, of 21st century Japanese economic policy. So, why was Abe drawn to reflation and economic reform, and how did that seep into his political and economic philosophy?
1: It's really fascinating, and it's just in general, the story of how he reinvented himself, how he picked himself up from a really professional humiliation, the kind of thing that I think most people would struggle to come back in, getting back into the fight, getting back into the arena. Whatever you think of Abe and his politics, it's just a fascinating story. In addition to his family and his background, it was very much just the unlikelihood that he would come back like this. And the fact that I was caught surprised in 2012 when he comes back was part of the reason why I wanted to tell the story. So his reinvention was really the political consequence of the triple disasters of of 2011. So you have this moment, this massive shock, earthquake, tsunami, nuclear disaster, the reconstruction, the Tohoku region is going to require an enormous amount of money. It is a very live issue immediately after how it's going to get paid for. At the moment, you had the former opposition Democratic Party of Japan governing the country. The LDP is desperate to find a way back in. Abe is desperate to find a way back into relevance. And so at the This moment, it's like weeks after the disasters, Abe got connected with an LDP politician, Yamamoto Kozo, who is a hardcore reflationist, a former finance ministry bureaucrat who hated the finance ministry, hated the finance ministry's interest in balanced budgets and tax hikes, and <laughs> and you know believed that the only way out of Japan's long-term stagnation was a coordinated fiscal monetary stimulus, and that the Bank of Japan and the finance ministry had to work together to open the floodgates, to let the money flow through the system. So Yamamoto was afraid that after this, this disaster, that the finance ministry would push for tax Tax hike to pay for reconstruction. And so he wanted to form a study group that would advocate for. For, you know, for basically like unlimited quantitative easing to finance the reconstruction of Tohoku. So the thing about Yamamoto, though, he was kind of a misfit. He was railing against the finance ministry. His views were very much not in the mainstream. He was connected to a number of economists, academic economists, sort of policy economists who were also misfits. You know, these reflationary ideas, which were actually mainstream in North America, in Europe, Paul Krugman, Adam Bernanke. Posen. And, but yeah, all these, you know, a number of very prominent Americans, is, you know, The solution to Japan's problems are very easy. They need to do this. And they never really had gotten mainstream acceptance in Japan. Why? You know, it's the power of the Bank of Japan's establishment that viewed itself as the guardian of sound money. The finance ministry believing that it had to defend... The budget and to prevent a run-up of large deficits, and of course was horrified by the budget deficits that were run up during the 90s and, and 2000s. And both of those establishments were very powerful and, and backed by the business establishment. And you know that some international financial institutions also raised their concerns about Japan's debt levels and believed that Japan couldn't possibly go this route. There was a lot of institutional firepower arrayed against these ideas, and yes, it might have been con- conventional wisdom outside of Japan, but had made very little gains within Japan, and, and did not have mainstream acceptance within Japan so you had these sort of outsiders these misfits trying to to find a way to get their ideas into the mainstream and you had this figure Abe who was looking for a way back into political prominence and it was just his marriage of convenience Yamamoto thought okay if you have Abe here's someone who is going to be a lightning rod you have him attached to this group it's going to get a lot of attention because he has an ability to attract media attention that they were not able to get because his
0: personality is more dynamic Because he was a former prime minister, like what what was it about him which allowed him to sort of stay in the spotlight even after such a dramatic fall?
1: Uh, I mean, kind of all of the above and that he also he had relationships with kind of friendly conservative media. You know, he reentered active politics in 2008, 2009, was still basically the leader of the LDP's kind of right wing and was seen as that. So therefore, when he gave speeches, when he took foreign trips, when he met with foreign officials, all of that attracted attention. Also, at that time, he actually had a column in an evening daily tabloid. And so, you know, he had a big platform, basically a blogger. Yeah, sort of. And actually, this was, actually, at this time, there was a ton of Japanese political blogging at this point. You know, every diet member had to have his blog. It was a great, it was a great <laughs> time. You know, it was a, which was also actually, it was a great time to be a Japanese political commentator because there was so much material. They were writing about so much. So it was great. I loved it. So you had, I mean, this guy with a really big platform, what he said was going to get a lot of attention. And to be relevant and to ever have another shot to run for the premiership, he knew he had to be a, a more complete politician. He had to round out his image. He couldn't just be Abe the defense hawk. He couldn't just be Abe the guy who wanted the constitution revised. He had to have sort of economic policy chops that he just did not have the first time around. And so Yamamoto basically set up like tutoring sessions for him with these advocates of reflation. And they taught him what he needed to know. And Abe took to it. And I mentioned in the book, he had this column that he was writing. At first, it was all about how bad the Democratic Party of Japan was. They're incompetent. They're caving to China, all of that. And then... Frequently, he's writing about these monetary policy topics. And, and and again, I write this in the book, you know, that, that marries it to his vision of a strong Japan and, and that this is part of the idea of Japan's national revival, that it's not just about military strength. It's not just about historical revisionism to be proud of Japan's past. It's also, you know, he has to have a credible program to revive Japan's economy.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, the, the sort of make Japan great again thread of this was clearly something that really excited him. And I don't want to do too much of this, but the Trump-Abe parallels are interesting because there are parts of their ideologies which, which echo each other, but there's a lot which Abe was able to bring to the table in terms of a positive vision for economic development as opposed to just like, I guess, trade wars and tax cuts for corporations and the sort of like nationalism which is paired with a global vision for japan which is not something which trump was really into at all though we'll we'll, we'll get to that we'll get to that a little later so suga also makes his appearance of course as prime minister as like a seemingly like i don't know backroom dealer or like knows the ways around all the, the the ministries what was his role in this intermediate time to help abe get back on track
1: suga has been widely written. I mean, is is in some ways the diametric opposite of Abe as a politician. Not a hereditary politician at all. His father was a farmer, not like a poor farmer by any means. Uh, you know, Abe grew up in Tokyo. Suga came from northern Japan, from snow country. It, it, just a totally different world than than what Abe grew up in. Basically, patrician figure. The doors just opened up for him. Uh, Suga, meanwhile, had to work his way up into politics. Entered as a secretary for an LDP member from Yokohama, worked in that job for an extraordinary long period of time, which gave him a number of relationships both within Yokohama and Yokohama politics and then within the LDP at the national level as well, then uses that as a platform to run for, for office in Yokohama. So joins the Yokohama City Council, basically becomes the shadow mayor because he's so well-connected and just has is renowned for a strong work ethic and the ability to just get things done and to do what he had to do to get things done. And then eventually, actually, is elected to the Diet, finally, in 1996. Not known as a particularly ideological guy, so another way in which he's different than Abe. You know, where Abe is very much, this is my vision, I'm going to push and push to get it done. Suga is, he just wants to govern. He wants to govern effectively. He wants to get policy Right. So very different from Abe. And yet Suga finds himself drawn to his orbit. Suga was a member of Abe's first cabinet when he was prime minister in 2006, 2007. And then when Abe resigns, Suga pledges that he's going to help Abe get back into power and you know, stays close to Abe during the wilderness years. And then in 2012, the LDP is approaching another leadership election. It looks like the LDP is on its way back into power, so the stakes of this leadership election are really important. And is there whispering in Abe's ear, look, this might be your time. And at the same time that people were saying, don't do it again. Maybe down the road you'll have another shot, but it's too soon. Everyone remembers what happens in 2007. People aren't going to like it. People aren't going to trust you. Don't run. Don't give it a shot. And Suga was there. I've done the math. This is your shot. You can do it. And he was right. You know, Abe threw his hat in and won a comeback victory in the election and won the LDP's leadership and then became prime minister down the road.
0: So the other thing which Suga did in the early years of the first Abe administration was clearly tell him to get a handle on the bureaucracy. And, you know, reading a lot of political biographies like, the, the smart ones, when they come in, try to reform the civil service to make sure that they'll do what they want to do, especially if they have kind of big ambitions to change the way these bureaucracies work. So, so maybe first off, Tobias, what was the traditional relationship between these ministries and the elected leadership, and, and why was that frustrating before we get into Abe's reforms? That's a deep history. Um... We got time. I love these. You know, we th- those are awesome books. Everyone should read. Uh, what's, the, what's the book everyone reads? The
1: Midi book. Oh, uh, uh, Midi and the Japanese Miracle. Yeah, yeah. Chalmers Johnson. It's a classic, absolutely must read. So the Japanese bureaucracy emerged from World War II basically unreformed. The U.S. occupation moves in, realizes they need some help governing this country that they're now suddenly responsible for. With some exceptions, then the bureaucracy basically survives the war and retains a lot of power, uh, a lot of power over the private sector, a lot of influence over how decision-making works, and then basically governs with the LDP sort of in partnership. This is not, you know, the politicians telling the bureaucrats what to do. This is very much bureaucrats influencing what the politicians want to do. Chalmers Johnson's phrase elsewhere is that the politicians reigned and the bureaucrats ruled. That was the story of how Japan was governed for much of the Cold War period. Again, coming back to 1993 and and the post-Cold War period in Japanese politics, this was was one of the things that as the Cold War ended, as people looked at the Cold War era system, that what was called the 1955 system after the year the LDP was first elected or first formed, that that this was something else that had to change. That if Japan was going to become a strong, capable power, you had to have proper political control the politicians had to be able to say this is what we're going to do and this is how we're going to do it and we're going to tell the bureaucrats what to do and instead of undermining us or sabotaging us or saying they're going to do it and then going off and doing their own thing the politicians have to be able to win an electoral mandate from the public and use that power to change how japan is governed to change japan's policies to change its foreign policies to change its defense policies all of that has to be possible. And so you had this process from 1993 onwards to really make that kind of system possible, to reform the bureaucracy, to change the electoral system, to encourage a two-party system where you'd have two parties really competing on their electoral platforms and communicating with the public what they were going to do. And and so one after the other, you know, two steps forward, one step back. And and this process built up. And, and what you did get over time was the prime minister's office becoming much stronger, a lot more formal power, a lot more informal power. And that Power was gained at the expense of the bureaucracy and at the expense of the ruling party. So, Tobias, what couldn't prime ministers do? During the 1955 system, the prime minister didn't exactly have control over budgets. The finance ministry made sure they had to have a very tight grip on how budgets were made. The prime minister also had to contend with his own party, and the LDP had what were called Bukai, which are these sort of policy groups that worked with the bureaucracy behind the prime minister's back, oftentimes to get pork barrel spending, to get earmarks and pet projects through. This this idea that the prime minister would be able to just say, this is what policy is going to be, and everyone would follow, that was not what happened. It was very much a lot of scheming. The prime minister, because of how the LDP worked, often couldn't really choose members of his own cabinet. He often had to consider what the factions wanted, and so you had this factional balance. You had a lot of turnover in cabinet ministries, which gave the bureaucrats more power because you'd have a new cabinet minister come in who basically had no idea what was going on and would just do whatever the bureaucrats told them. And so, I mean, just, you basically just had the prime minister sitting at the top of the system above all of this churn going on and very, very little ability
0: to pull strings and get what he wanted done. So this sounds terrible. How did it create 10% GDP growth for a really long time? I mean,
1: to some extent, the high-speed growth earlier in the post-war period. Some of that was just low-hanging fruit. Some of that was you had a lot of reconstruction to do. So you just build stuff. A lot of that was the population's growing. So more people means more growth. Part of it was that you had deliberate policy choices to capital-intensive growth and really accumulating resources, investing those proceeds. Part of it was the period of time that you had capital controls. You had a favorable relationship with the United States that really gave Japan a market for its exports. All of that kind of worked together to create the conditions for high-speed growth. And I think just it worked. And in fact, the saying during the Cold War era was that Japan had a first-rate economy and third-rate politics. And that ended up just being fine for everyone. That, you know, that, okay, you know, so we're subordinate to the United States. We're not necessarily a great power, but look, we're an economic superpower. People look to us, and then we can channel our our wealth into overseas development assistance, and that means people have to take us seriously. And for most of the Cold War, that was fine. That A lot of people were able to live with that and be happy with it.
0: How much credit do you give to the excellence of MIDI and the kind of geniuses that bought all the side suit um are you more on the side of look they had pretty decent factor endowments it was already kind of a developed country before the war and it wasn't necessarily all these tokyo university grads which used their um not particularly invisible hands to make sure that the trains ran on time
1: I think we shouldn't overstate the superpowers of the bureaucracy. But look, in terms of channeling resources into growth sectors, the industrial sectors of the future and you know, using industrial policy to structure the Japanese economy and, and policy tools to channel resources to Limit excessive competition. All of those things mattered. That yeah, maybe Japan would have grown anyway. But the industrial base, the companies that succeeded during the Cold War, um, and and it's not that MIT picked all of the winners. Famously, they didn't necessarily pick Sony, but they didn't necessarily pick Toyota as a winner. But in general, the idea of we're going to use our all of the policy tools at our disposal to grow in the sectors that are going to be the highest value added. You know, to move out of light manufacturing into heavy industry and, and to to channel resources in that way. I think they absolutely played a role to, in doing that. And of course, then it inspired South Korea, inspired a number of other countries that have had similar successes um, in not just growing, but in growing in a particular way and in, led by particular sectors.
0: Yeah, there's a, there's a great book to be written about uh, uh, comparing the sort of origin stories of Sony, Samsung, and, and Huawei, but we'll mm-hmm. save that. Uh, we'll save that for another time. Okay, by the 90s and 2000s, the bureaucracy is losing its touch. You know, we can blame macroeconomic forces, but clearly there was a lack of sort of innovation and creativity in the uh in the in the policymaking in the economic policymaking in particular in 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 Japan. So coming back to our now. Na- yeah. So
1: this this kind of had been the holy grail for a long time. How do you make bureaucrats more answerable to politicians? And there had been attempts to create essentially a centralized personnel um, bureau for a long time. None of them had, had succeeded because the each ministry controlled its personnel choices, essentially, or, or had... More power um, than the prime minister did, and so f- even before there was reform, basically from day one, Suga called you know, the top officials from all the ministries into his office and said, "I want to know every personnel senior promotion decision that you're making. I want to know who you're promoting." And so immediately, it was a wake up call that that if you want to get ahead in, in in your ministry, you better be on your best behavior and you best be doing things that please the political masters of the moment and That power was then institutionalized in in 2014. You got the creation of a cabinet personnel bureau that formally gave the prime minister's office the ability to basically pick the highest five or 600 officials. And of course, the influence of that goes far beyond just those appointments because anyone who wants to work their way up is going to be thinking, okay, if I don't want my career to stall out, I better be making a name for myself. I better be doing things that A, don't anger the political authorities and B, maybe make them happy going above and beyond. And what happened later and of course, Abe's tenure is that uh, as, as people warned, you ended up getting, as people maybe are trying to do things for the prime minister that were that skirted the law, but th- that's a different issue. They wanted to make clear the prime minister's office is setting policy direction. We are going to say, this is what we want to do, and we're expecting you to implement it, which did not mean that there wasn't a role for the bureaucrats. This did not mean that the politicians were doing everything. What it meant was we are going to work with the politicians. We recognize Suga that he wrote in 2012 calls the Japanese bureaucracy, the world's finest think tank. They recognized the talent in the bureaucracy, that the bureaucracy had a lot to contribute. And and Abe had plenty of bureaucrats, particularly at METI, METI's successor ministry, who he trusted and relied upon, but they were going to join with the prime minister in creating national policy and then making the ministries follow. And that was the goal. The goal was that you'd have these national officials with with a more holistic vision who would work with the politicians to craft policy.
0: So in the U.S., Every president gets like five thousand political appointees, and that ranges the gambit from like little twenty four year old high achieving special assistants to assistant secretaries, deputy assistant secretaries, a few hundred people in the white um, who are there to make sure that the bureaucracies do with the president is that that number is much smaller in Japan, right? Yeah, you get
1: three to five political appointees per ministry. You have more in the prime minister's office has grown. Um, but even a lot of the people in the prime minister's office are coming from the ministries. So this is So You're not getting a lot of people coming from the ruling party into government, into the executive branch uh, to make policy. This is very much uh, the
0: bureaucracy still outnumbers the politicians. I
1: mean, it, which it does in the United States, but the ratio is, is much more skewed.
0: Yeah. And there's there's upsides and downsides to both systems. Right. Like I just read Michael Lewis's book who should come on China talk. He hasn't <laughs> responded to my emails. If anyone knows Michael Lewis, <laughs> let's make that happen. Um, but, you know, his whole thing was like the the sort of politicization of, uh, you know, pandemic response was incredibly Detrimental to what all of us have had to live through over the course of over the course of 2020 and, and, and 2021. Um, you know, there, there are upsides and downsides to having elected officials have more control over your bureaucracies. But um, Abe uh, clearly was able to swing the pendulum a little back more toward elected uh, control of elected officials. Other reforms uh, created his own NSC, National Security Council, which I thought was which I thought was particularly interesting. What else? What else do you want to highlight in in the uh, in the uh, domestic political agenda that Abe brought to the fore?
1: Yeah, the, uh, when you when it comes to the NSC, and I think one project that Abe had been pursuing, and Abe and other conservatives have been pursuing for a while, as part of um, what Abe in 2006 called, you know, leaving behind the the post war regime, was creating what you might call a a. A proper national security state that japan had not had that during the cold war due to restraints on its armed forces that it did like have, didn't
0: doesn't have classifications like there's no secrets
1: it it had a very leak prone secret system it still doesn't really have like a proper like a full-blown u.s style classification system in the same way Which might be for the
0: best honestly like.
1: uh, yeah that's and i say this all all of this with I, i'm describing I'm not necessarily judging and I think in some ways go kind of the quaintness of Japan's lack of a national security state um, is charming I guess you can say I mean but the point is <laughs> that, that during the during the Cold War era they did not have a full-blown national security state a strong emphasis on civilian control recognizing Japan's history during the war you, it did not have a full defense ministry it had a defense agency which was directly under the prime minister and there was several layers like, of deeply not cool. Uh, several layers of civilian control separating uniformed officers from civilian from the prime minister. So this is not uh, you're not seeing people with uniforms running around. and There were strong norms. Report you know, supposedly the people looked down on the SDF, the self defense forces, so much that when SDF personnel were off base, they would change out of their uniforms into civvies because they didn't want to be seen in uniform and have people attack them. Just very what political scientist Tom Berger called a. a culture of anti-militarism that that characterized Japan during uh, the Cold War period. Now The conservatives after the Cold War really wanted to change that. They wanted the institutions of a national security state, which meant a defense ministry which Abe created when he became, was first prime minister, created in 2007. Creating a National Security Council when he came back uh, a state secrets law so strengthening the protection of state secrets particularly in the def- in defense and foreign policy but also in some other areas all of that is part it's and the critics said this is all just about going back to pre-war Japan and I, I don't think it's that but it is creating a, a national security establishment that Japan has not had since 1945 um, and and that is what all, all many of these changes have amounted to. So so that that's what those reforms have been have been aimed at accomplishing. The other area, I think domestic policies that we considering, is one of the first things he did was regime change at the Bank of Japan. One of Abe's early decisions that he was gonna to have to make was how to fill a vacancy uh, at the top of the Bank of Japan. So he was gonna to have to name a governor and, and two deputy governors. And so, of course, his reflationary, uh, his reflationist advisors were saying this is you need someone who's politically re- reliable, someone who's committed to these ideas, who's going to be who's going to carry out your political will. You want to do the three arrows. You want coordinated uh, fiscal and monetary expansion. You need someone reliable who's going to signal that the Bank of Japan is not going to do the same failed policies of the past. It's going to try something new, th- this belief in a regime shift. And he, he thought hard about it. There was a, a long list that was progressively narrowed down. And he ended up picking the current governor, Kuroda Haruhiko, who was not anyone's first choice, really. He's a former ministry official, so a ready suspect. He had been at the the Asian Development Bank. So not necessarily someone who they thought would be the best choice, but there was some speculation that it would be one of his, one of these reflationist economists who who would get the job. Although that would be a very unconventional pick for for Japan, where the Bank of Japan governorship has really alternated between former high-ranking BOJ officials and former high-ranking ministry of finance officials, and they usually alternate. But you ended up getting Kuroda. He ended up being exactly what Abe wanted for the job. He was committed to reflationism and did carry out the kind of regime shift that Abe needed at the Bank of Japan. So that was really the other important change early on.
0: Yeah, I mean, then we have the bazooka. We have, yep. you know, negative interest rates. with uh, you know, guess uh, somewhat mixed bag. But the but the fact that he was able to sort of push this reform through is is really remarkable. So, w- 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 what's your take, Tobias, on the legacy of um, of the uh, the monetary policy? Hey, look.
1: W- Japan has not gotten anywhere near the 2% uh, inflation target that they announced in 2013. They have tried. It has, as you rattled off, it has been a, a lot of different policy experiments. I think it goes to show um, that actually the reflationists were wrong. They had told Abe that that your true, uh, truly uh, innovative, unconventional monetary policy hadn't been tried, and that if you tried that, it would enable Japan to break free from long-term stagnation. They rejected the belief of... of Kuroda's predecessor, uh, Mr. Shirokawa, uh, that that you know, monetary policy can only do so much. That because the demographics and the demographic outlook were a long-term constraint on Japan's growth. It provided uh, deflationary pressure, and to some extent, Abe actually permitted uh, after a couple of years that actually the demographic constraints were more significant than they all thought, that monetary policy was not a silver bullet. It was not going to magically fix every problem that ailed Japan. And so they have kept at it um, because I think I think there were fears for what the market consequences of abandoning unconventional monetary policies would be. Of course, the fact that you're in a kind of low inflation, you know, negative interest rate world everywhere means that Japan was just a canary uh, in the coal mine it, it's not going to abandon these policies because no one has abandoned these policies and everyone is now in the same boat. But in the end um, it ended up being with every year that passed of Abe and Abenomics, it ended up being a progressively less important piece of the Abe legacy.
0: Let's talk a little about d- demographics. Abe, uh, Japan famously a not particularly friendly place for, um, for instance. Um, this was something that he was, he was a uh, guest worker, guest worker programs and whatnot. Tobias, what were the politics around, around letting more foreigners in to the, country uh to, to to boost up to boost the labor pool as well as other reforms he was trying um you know bring more women into the workforce and, and have elderly continue to work for
1: I think that there was a recognition you know, when we talk about the the third arrow this is a great the great hope of of economics, that you'd have a burst of monetary and fiscal stimulus and then it would clear the way for reform in other areas and but the third arrow is not well understood. Um, It was a lot of different things. You know, you look at these growth strategies and it's these lengthy laundry lists of policies. But I think they were trying to do Three things. First, that they recognized that if you're going to have fewer workers, you, you know, to maintain Japan's standard of living, you needed to produce more per worker, and that meant shifting resources into higher value-added sectors, allowing more entrepreneurial activity, more use of IT. So, great finding finding the low-hanging fruit to improve the efficiency and the productivity of you know each individual worker, each firm, and that was lots of different things. It was agricultural reform. Um, That was, you are trying to create, um, you know, a a venture capital culture that never really existed and and finding ways to encourage entrepreneurs, lots of different policies in that area. Some work better than others. A lot of it was, you know, just new style industrial policy and and channeling subsidies to support R&D in new areas, very into the idea of uh, the fourth industrial revolution and fostering Japanese activity and, and sort of those cutting edge high tech sectors. So that was one piece of the third arrow. Another piece of the third era was trying to find ways to at least slow the decline of Japan's workforce. And that meant a few things. That meant finding ways to encourage retirees to reenter the workforce in productive ways. So that that you slow the kind of leak of workers of the labor force at the upper end. A lot of it was Womenomics was how do you know, how do you keep women in the workforce? How do you defeat what's called the M curve where you have women in the workforce and they drop out to start families and then maybe they come back in and then they go back out and then they go back in, you know, this kind of in and out. But how do you find ways to keep women in the workforce for longer? So you have you have this kind of untapped pool of workers um, who can again, make up for these older workers who are retiring and leaving the workforce. Also, part of that was foreign work. How do you have foreign workers? Is that a pool that you can include in the labor force, again, to make up for these departing workers? And part of that was building on existing guest worker Basically, informal guest worker, what were called kind of foreign technical trainee programs. This program was rife with abuse. It really needed a lot of work, a lot more oversight, a lot more attention paid to it. Um, And even as they were trying to reform it, more abuses came to light. So it was really uh, a problematic thing, um, but they did expand it. They did open it more categories to that program. And then also they created a whole new visa entry visa for migrant workers who could stay for three to five years, depending on the conditions. They would generally not come with their families, depending on the skills they were coming with. Some would be allowed to come with their families. And again, this recognition that in the short term, you need to find more workers to make up for uh, the people exiting the workforce. Um, yeah. The successes are very I remember
0: bumming around uh, bumming around fukuoka in february of 2020 unsure whether i was going to go back to china or japan or not and being surprised that there were actually like a handful of um uh like service workers who uh, were much more comfortable in chinese than they were in english um which was which was not something i i expected
1: yeah if in the tokyo area you go into a convenience store it's very likely that the person on the other side of the counter is not japanese very likely yeah from all over i mean uh Bangladesh, you know, elsewhere in Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia, Chinese. I mean Chinese you know, you look at the numbers, you know, they're more you know, of the foreign population, which is the largest it's ever been, most of those or, or at least the largest share is Chinese but not exclusively Chinese. But that was a recognition that Japan has no choice. I mean, it is not opening Japan to immigration because I think there were a number of reassurances to Abe's conservative base to reassure them that we're not, you know, this is not the opening the door to Japan becoming a multicultural society, there are going to be tight controls on who's allowed in, that all of this happened shortly before the pandemic and was not a success beforehand and you're not really seeing a lot of foreign entry right now. The impact, in, in practical terms, has been limited. But it did show that having foreign workers was a concession to the reality uh, that Japan needs it to at least slow the decline of
0: its workforce. So, let's turn to foreign policy. Korea-Japan relations really puzzling during during the Abe arc. What were the what were the sort of push and pull factors that that led to such a tense relationship?
1: Well, you know, I I think a lot of South Koreans, they look at Abe, they look at his history of what you could call revisionist remarks on history. And during his first premiership, he got into trouble um, with a series of poorly considered remarks about the comfort women that really angered South Koreans. Um, I I just don't think they trusted him very much. They thought, you here's someone who said, we're done apologizing, Japan should be proud of its past. And so there just was not a lot of hope and optimism in as a partner for South Korea. And the early signs it goes to Yasukuni Shrine in 2013, not exactly an encouraging sign to South Korea. It was complicated by the fact that you had President Park come in, and in theory, you would think a, a Korean conservative would be more friendly. But you know, I think she was constrained by the fact that her father had served in the imperial military during the war. She had to, I think, avoid the impression of being overly solicitous of Japan. So at first... They definitely got off on the wrong foot um, when you know they both basically started an office at the same time. Eventually, I think because the Obama administration was very invested in getting Japan and South Korea working more closely together, they did eventually meet. And you did get actually in 2015 at the end of 2015. What I thought at the time was actually a very significant agreement, where Abe did apologize uh, for Japan's treatment of the comfort women, offered compensation and a personal apology. The Pak government accepted that, uh, and part of that agreement was that this would mean the that the book would be closed uh, on the issue. South Korea would not raise it in international fora. You know that that they would move on. They would work on building a a future oriented relationship. And all of that was fine. You actually you ended up getting the GSOMIA an, an intelligence sharing agreement. It looked like maybe things were moving in the right direction. And then of course President Park gets impeached. Uh, you get the transition to the Moon administration. You get so you get a progressive government in Korea and constituency. Are so these activist groups that look at Japan and look at Abe and view them as unrepentant and you're basically opposing the agreement that was reached in 2015 and one of the first things that Moon does, he announces that they're going to look into how that agreement was reached. And basically they make it a dead letter they basically they vacate the agreement and so from japan's perspective they say look we did it yeah we gave you the exactly what you wanted and how are we supposed to trust you and so then you end up in this this downward spiral you get these court case, cases in south korea you know korean courts order japanese companies to pay forced laborers japan retaliates with economic sanctions south korea there's a kind of an informal boycott and, and now you're at this place where we are now, where they're basically not talking to each other, or they are, but the talks aren't really going anywhere because there's very little trust between the two governments.
0: Like a so, Obama went to Hiroshima for the 70th anniversary and did not apologize for, uh, you know, for, for for dropping two nuclear bombs on Japan. I'm curious, like, is there some world in which? American more forthrightness on, you know, national guilt for. For use of nuclear weapons, like rebounds and makes it easier for Japanese politicians to say, you know, we were also kind of assholes or more than kind of assholes over the course of the first half of the twenty. 20- Probably not. Like The Japanese would
1: take that and say, see, exactly. We were victims. The U.S., they said it. They, they agreed. We're victims. But I think it's important actually to think about what Abe and Obama did. So in 2013, December 2013, you have this, this moment where a number of People inside and outside the Obama administration are telling Abe, do not go to Yasukuni. You're going to make our life more difficult. You're going to do China's work. This will be a major propaganda victory for China. We want you to get along with South Korea. You're going to make it a lot harder to do that. Please don't go. And Abe, December 26, 2013, it's the, or it's the first anniversary of his return to power. He goes and worships Yasukuni. You know, everything You've gotta products. love it when
0: the when the when the Asian politicians pull shit between between Christmas and this, New oh, Year's. Yeah. It's just like it's like the favorite, it's just like the like the it's a it's a tradition at this point. Yeah, ruined a
1: lot of people's vacations. And of course, the Chinese and South Korean governments react in predictable ways. The really surprising thing, though, is that you get the statement from the US Embassy from Ambassador Caroline Kennedy that time expressing disappointment in Abe's going and it's this major blow up and everyone spends the New Year's uh, holiday at that point debating what it means and uh, the friction and what are the consequences for the relationship going to be. And so what, but what you had after that was not f- friction, but actually that, that the Obama administration hugged Abe in Japan closer than ever. And some of that, a lot of that was real politic. You know, they recognized that you had a prime minister in Japan who was doing things that the U.S. wanted, strengthening Japan's defense capabilities, brought Japan into TPP. You know, So the U.S. was getting a lot of what it wanted uh, from Abe and recognizing that if the U.S.-China policy really had to go through Tokyo, if it was that. and But you ended up, I think, having this process of where Obama and Abe found ways to to talk about history without it feeling like Japan was being attacked or blamed or put into a corner you have to apologize and the finger is being pointed at you and to try to get Japan to talk about to get Abe to talk about Japan's past in forthright Ways and, and frank ways, but without it being like you have to apologize. The apology has to have these words in it, and if you don't do that, it means you're a bad actor. What happened? Abe went to, to Canberra in 2014 and gives a speech at the Australian Parliament. You're know, talking about Japan's wartime past with Australia. Goes to Washington in in 2015, joint session, speech to the joint session of Congress, also with themes about historical reconciliation. You know, you so so you know, just again talking you know with remorse about Japan's past. Abe meets with uh, American POWs, tries to express his remorse for their treatment at the hands of of the Imperial Japanese military. You had actually part of that kind of, I actually got, this was actually neat, I actually got to tag along. But when Abe went to Washington in the spring of 2015, he actually given a a private tour of the the Holocaust Museum. And so I I like tagging along with his entourage and watching that tour. Just a, a conscious effort to not, Think about history and his historical reconciliation as blaming and shaming, but but still trying to do forthright reckoning. And I think Obama going to Hiroshima was very much part of that. You know, and Obama I think had early on expressed an interest. You know, as part of his desire uh, to promote nuclear zero globally. You know, the stars aligned in 2016. And, and the Abe government wanted to to encourage that as well. And Abe Obama goes to, to Hiroshima, you know, does not apologize, but he gives this eloquent speech, so it's reckoning with what the U.S. did and what what happened there, and the U.S. in the in the advent of the nuclear era, and really reckoning and grappling with America's use of force even during his presidency. And so it's just we're not gonna we're not gonna apologize. We're not gonna. It's not about blaming and shaming, but we are gonna try to be honest about this. And of course, at the very end of Obama's presidency. You get this moment where they go to Pearl Harbor together weeks before Trump becomes president, where this final act and they both give speeches. That's almost like the the senior thesis of this multi-year process of historical reckoning and, and you know trying to face up you know this these issues forthrightly. Now, to be sure, it's notable that you get this kind of process with Australia and with the United States, but not with South Korea. It's not, Abe is not going to these lengths when it comes to South Korea. And so it it is not a complete process. It would have been nice to see the same thing happen. It didn't. Part of that is is that I don't think the South Koreans would be satisfied with something like that. I think they're still very much in the um, blaming and shaming and, and we need more. You know, not that they're looking, not that they expect, you know, compensation is going to make things whole by any means. And this is not about the money, but it is about the symbolism. And so that kind of process probably wouldn't work with the South Koreans in the first place. But you did not see that effort. You got the 2015 Comfort Women Agreement, but not much more than that.
0: Let's do... Japan China relations twenty thirteen to pre pandemic.
1: Abe when he when he's engineering's come back, you know as much of his, his comeback was not just about reflation and economic stagnation, it was also very much about the Democratic Party of Japan in power, got pushed around by China, did not stand up for Japan, particularly in the dispute around the Daoyu Islands in the East China Sea, and that Japan needed a leader who was going to stand up to China and be strong and firm uh, and not cave. And you had these incidents, the the collision between a Coast Guard vessel and a, and a Chinese fishing boat in 2010. Um, you had China's response to uh, Japan nationalization of the of the islands uh, in 2012. And all of that showed that we can't trust the Democratic Party of Japan in power. The LGP needs to come back. And you need a leader like me who's going to stand up for Japan and is going to have, you know, going to build up Japan's military. It's going to strengthen deterrence in the East China Sea, which also included going to the U.S. and seeking reassurance from the Obama administration that the security treaty applied to the islands. And and so Abe spent the first several years doing that And, and also just ratcheted up the rhetoric, right? You had this moment in 2014 where Abe goes to Davos and says that this is reminiscent of the arms races between uh, Britain and Germany before World War One, and of course everyone's thinking about the anniversary of, of the 100th anniversary of World War One, and, and it gets everyone uh, worked up and then you get this war of world, words and the China is, is Voldemort or, or China calls Japan Voldemort and Yasukuni Shrine is is a horcrux this very like <laughs> bizarre the bizarre war of words between the Japanese and Chinese ambassadors in the UK um, naturally and so for the first several years things are very tense between Japan and China there's not a lot of communication. You have this famous picture of Abe and she meeting for the first time. They're not even looking at each other, and she is like holding Abe's hand limply. It's like a rot- like a five day old like fish or you know something like that. And and so that that really had been the story for the first several years, but. It really was in early 2017 that the the winds shifted. I think some of this is a response to the fact that you had, you know, I think anxieties about the the Trump administration, what the Trump administration would mean for Japan, what it would mean for the global trading order, and and both China and Japan being countries that benefited from that. And so it was really on that basis that they started drawing together and cautiously uh, the beginnings of discussions. And and really that began with Belt and Road Forum in 2017, Abe sends kind of his personal envoys. his private secretary and LDP secretary, General Nikai, who has very deep ties to China, the Chinese leadership. Uh, They go, they bring a personal letter from Abe saying he wants to initiate talks. A few months later, Abe and Xi have another meeting that goes a lot better than some of the earlier ones. And you actually have a series of meetings. And, And the main kind of pillar of this is economic cooperation. There's actually talk about Japan and China cooperating on Belt and Road projects. So it's not, this is not a you know, okay, we're going to have a, a grand bargain and a true reconciliation is going to be here. I think it was really a commitment to compartmentalize some of the security competition, the concerns about China's military, the East China Sea issues. All of those things are going to be there. I mean, there's some gestures towards a hotline and confidence building measures so that you don't have to worry as much about an accident or a collision that results in, in some sort of conflict. You know, and, and of course, at this moment, there's lots of talk between the US and Japan uh, about strengthening deterrence and very concerned that we certainly hear more of even you know, more of today uh, about the military balance, but still efforts to find areas of economic cooperation and at least stabilize the situation. You know, a lot of this pressure coming from corporate Japan in particular, which has a big footprint in China and is, and is worried about the impact that, that politics and security could have on the economic relationship.
0: You, you recently wrote a piece for uh, Foreign Affairs talking about the surprising strength of Chinese-Japanese ties. Um, What are those sort of connective tissues, which American leaning is not likely to break anytime soon?
1: Well, you know, so it's this tightrope walk between the security alliance with the United States. And I mean, the security alliance, the cultural relationships, the interpersonal relations, the political relations. I mean, I mean, of course, the the U.S.-Japan relationship is incredibly dense as well. But the the Japan-China relationship, since the normalized ties in the late 70s, is also very dense. They're major trading partners. Japan has... Uh, large amounts of investment uh, in China. And not just in terms of the absolute amount of money, but just lots of companies, right? Lots of companies that have been on the ground in China with their people in China for a very long period of time. They have relationships with their host communities that go back a long way. And... You know, they're producing, of course, for export in China, but they're also increasingly producing for the local market as well. It is a large market. And as you get a wealthier Chinese middle class, it is a market that Japanese companies recognize they have to be able to sell for. Japan is a shrinking market. They can't depend on Japan as a market for growth. They are looking to the continent. And and, and so the reality is just that, that there's no way around dense commercial ties uh, with China, you know, during the Abe years, that also included massive tourist flows, right? That during the Abe years, there was a major emphasis on making Japan more friendly for tourists. China became the the largest source of tourists, surpassing South Korea during the Abe years. As, as I mentioned earlier, you now have a record large foreign population in Japan. The largest share of that comes from China. A large number of students are coming from China. That Japan is opening to the world, and the extent to which Japan is looking to the region uh, as an engine of growth. For the future, it has to look to China. There's no way around it. And with that comes economic interests and political interests that are communicating the need for at least a stable relationship with China. No one is saying that, that Japan doesn't have legitimate security concerns about China, but you're trying to find a balance, trying to keep the ties of communication with China open.
0: Can you talk a little bit about Japan's relationship with Taiwan? It's
1: complicated as well, of course. Taiwan's relationship with Japan is not, for example, the same as as South Korea, even though Taiwan was also a Japanese colony. um, You know, that friendlier feelings on the part of Taiwanese leadership up until the present day, um, Lee Dong-hui, you know, being a, a Japanese speaker and, and having his own kind of familial connections to Japan. Of course, during the Cold War, the Japanese right wing, very pro-Taiwanese. And so those affinities have continued up to the present. Those relationships really exist between the LDP's conservatives and the Taiwanese government. But of course, like there are limits to, to how far that goes. Japan is not selling arms to Taiwan because Japan doesn't really sell arms to anyone. That They're not doing formal visits by officials. They're still very much constrained by you know the reality of the need to stay China's good side. There's no explicit sense of what Japan would do in the event of a crisis. And of course, the United States also has an ambiguous position. That's not necessarily unusual. But the affinities are there. The relationships are there on a personal level. Abe's brother, the defense minister, uh, Kishi Nobuo, uh, was sort of Abe's informal envoy to Taiwan,
0: making a number of trips there during Abe's uh, premiership. It's complicated. Tobias, just bring us up to the present day with uh, with with Suga and how he's turning out. Also, Abe, uh, you know, down but not out. Maybe I don't know. We'll see. It Looks like he's got this like cool new drug cocktail. Um, what what's the what's the current uh, what's the current state of play in high Japanese domestic policy?
1: Well, so Abe announced his resignation in August of last year, the the day after my book came out, which was very fortunate for me. Um, So he resigned in 2007 after a severe attack of um, ulcerative colitis, which he's dealt with for most of his life. And part of his comeback in 2012 was showing that his health had recovered, that he had a new uh, drug that he was on, that he had a new exercise and stress management regime. And throughout his tenure, he had maintained that. But then when the pandemic hit, I think the hours he was working made it impossible to stay to that kind of stress management regime. His approval ratings fell sharply during the pandemic because you know, his government really had struggled to manage it so by August he's he makes several trips to the hospital speculations growing about what's going on with him so he announces that he is going in fact going to step down again and he quickly the LDP coalesces around Chief cabinet secretary Suga, and Suga is named the prime, the new prime minister in short order. And Suga has a bit of a honeymoon period, and it looks like he's got a firm hand on the situation. And then by November, December, COVID-19 cases start spiking again, and the wheels fall off. And Suga has been in the doldrums really ever since. After resisting a new state of emergency, he ends up having to declare one in January. That one goes until March. They lift it in March. Then a couple of weeks ago, they had to declare a new one because immediately. Came Cases started spiking again. You know, now, of course, there, there are questions about whether Japan can host the Olympics. Asuga is absolutely paying a political price for the perception that he has been Um, behind the curve in managing the pandemic, that his decisions have not been aggressive enough. Part of what's happened over the last years of the pandemic is also people have realized that there are real restrictions on the ability of the Japanese state. Throughout this crisis that you've had, the central government has basically had to ask local governors nicely to impose restrictions. And those constraints have been visible. They've been real. And and Suga has paid the price for them. And so Suga only has until September left in the term. He was elected to complete Abe's term, so there is going to be another LDP leadership election, uh, and there is also has to be a another general election by the by either October or November. And so there are real questions about whether the LDP wants to contest an election with Suga as its leader. And so it is very much an open question whether Suga will be prime minister past September. There has been speculation recently that Abe uh, is feeling good again. He's on a new drug for his condition. Part of what that reflects is really a leadership vacuum in the LDP, and particularly within Abe's faction, which is the LDP's largest. You know, if there were obvious successors, if there was an obvious universal consensus candidate from the next generation of LDP leaders, there'd be no question that I think Suga could hand the reins to, to someone else and it would not be Abe. The problem is that person doesn't exist. Every plausible contender either has a lot of enemies within the party or or just a number of other shortcomings that really make it hard for them to unite the party behind their candidacy. And it's possible that could find himself back in power because the party just can't agree on anyone else. Um, I, you know, it's probably a coin flip at this point. I'm by no means convinced that it's an, an, that it's inevitable, but it's possible that it's his, if he wants it, that no one is really going to be able to stop him. If he decides that he wants that he's up for it, he's going to do it again.
0: Yeah. Round threes never go well, um, especially with uh, active ulcers, but we'll see. I don't think he's taking cues from, from China talk. Um, Tobias, to close, uh, what book should people read after yours? And do you have any shout outs for uh, the next generation of English writing Japan politics <laughs> <laughs> bloggers uh, that you think deserve a little more shine?
1: So in terms of next book to read there's so many so many different directions one can go I mean there've been a number of very good new recent books about Japan. Bill Emmett has a book out about Japan's far more female future which is interesting. If you're interested in some of what we talked about Japan's developmental state and how it's grown and the role of industrial policy uh, Joe Studwell's How Asia Works is just a phenomenal book and, and Japan the Japanese story is part of that but then talks about the other Asian tigers and kind of in some ways what they learned from Japan and their experience. I always recommend another book rather that I thought was really insightful about Japan's development is uh, Capital as will, as will and Imagination by Mark Metzler, a, a Japanese economic. Historian, really phenomenal. And in terms of blogs to look at, a blogging scene is just not what it was, but there is a Substack called Nihon uh, Politics and really uh, deep dives into upcoming elections, including at the local level, which is really great. And he's on Twitter as well. Tobias Harris, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk.
2: Thank you. <laughs> Она あなたといたいあなたといたい会に見たりない遊び足りない Cosinos by night, baby. I baby. とっ Anata to あなた